Well, kia ora and welcome to another podcast on the Kaka. I'm Bernard Hickey uh, here in the Parliamentary Press Gallery with Dr. Saab Jahal, who is a clinical psychologist based here in, in Wellington. Saab, good to see you in our, our lovely grey padded studio. Kia ora, Bernard. Yeah, it's... It was quite padded. It's very soundproof, but it's a little bit worrying. Yes, it's a bit like screaming. it's a bit like a bunker. You know, when 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 the, the riots and the revolution happens, we'll be nice and safe. And I wanted to have a chat with you because I'm fascinated uh, with humans. I love finding out what are the reasons we do things individually and collectively. As my background is in training as an economist. And increasingly, I'm, I'm less enamoured of the macroeconomics and the microeconomics of the classical mathematics-driven <laughs> style. And I'm much more interested in the behavioural economics, the, the sort of understanding of how humans operate and what you can do with policy or just understanding to make sure that you get the best possible outcome. Because humans aren't always <laughs> rational, mm-hmm. and particularly when they're in groups, they can do funny things. So... Mm-hmm. With COVID, it's an extraordinary event, and we've all been put in places that we never expected we would be, and things have happened and not happened. And I would love to understand how the study of psychology and particularly mass psychology, if there is such a thing, is changing the way we respond to COVID, and I'm peculiarly interest, particularly interested in the vaccination programs. Mm. What can you tell us about what's been learned around the world about what works, what doesn't work, and how New Zealand, because everyone's different, how we could respond. Hmm. Let me go back to 2005-2006, which is when I first started working in emergency management, when we were thinking about H5N1 as the pandemic that we were next uh, in line for. We did a ton of work there around how to understand, how to support communities. But I think you're right in that it was quite individually focused and individually based. And I think that that's where we were in the world at that time. We were thinking about psychologists as independent decision makers. And I think that, again, you've hit upon something around on what variables do we base our decisions? And I think that you're right in that there was a kind of assumption that we were walking equations. We would take in various inputs and we would come to some kind of deliberation and we would make a cognitive rational decision as to what it is that we should do at that point in time and maybe some of the planning fell in line with that saying well okay if this happens and this happens then a person would process this information and this is the behavior we could expect I think in recent decades even going back to my own training I remember being very dissatisfied with what I was being told around how humans behave and Some people use the word irrational. I would not use that word. I would say that we make decisions based on all kinds of different inputs, not necessarily what we're being told, what we read, what we see. But we have all sorts of internal drivers, including our emotions, including the the shortcuts that we take, because we can't process all the information that's coming to us. We have to have ways of summarizing that and then going on things like gut feel, you know, how does this actually make us feel? Or, and this is a really important thing, what other people are doing around us? Because when we are in situations of uncertainty and we don't know what to do, we start to make assumptions where people are looking fairly sure about what they're doing around us. We assume that they know what we're, they're doing. And look, they haven't died yet. 
<laughs> so I'm going to do what they're doing because that's got a chance of keeping me alive. There are all kinds of other things as well in terms of you know the importance of a sense of community, right? We know from all the research that's been done over decades, one of the biggest predictors of what people what gets people through crisis is social support. If we understand that, then we can start to perhaps understand the appeal of you know, what we know as conspiracy theories, because I think it's not necessarily the framework or the explanation that people are giving to account for what's going on in the world. It's actually the sense of community, number one, is that I belong here because these people seem to be a tight-knit group and they're inviting me to join them. And the second one, it gives predictability. And that's been one of the most unsettling things, I think, for people as we go through the pandemic, is that suddenly the world as we knew in 2019 feels like a long time ago where we could say, with with you know, a fair degree of certainty, this is what my Monday looks like, this is what my week looks like, this is what my job looks like. All of that got thrown up in the air for many people, to some extent more than others. But what we crave is predictability. That must be so hard for people who are supposed to be leading when part of their role is to give people reassurance that the systems are in place and they've got this under control and that they have information and plans to communicate to everyone mm. that will help bring them reassurance when actually the people in charge, if you like, have the same uncertainties and the same lack of full information for decisions and somehow have to communicate on the run mm. that, A, I don't, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> mm. I don't necessarily know what the right thing to do is. But B, you know, I still have got your back and I'm not about to run out and dive into a bunker. Mm. So that's what I'm curious about is how people process that uncertainty and why it is perhaps that in New Zealand we seem to hold it together a bit better than some others during that really uncertain time. Yeah, it's a huge responsibility to lead in times of crisis like this where there's a huge amount of uncertainty, not just here in New Zealand, but we also triangulate, right? We're always checking what are other people doing? What are other countries doing? What are my relatives doing? What are the conditions that they're in? How are we shaping up? You know, and that started off really well here in New Zealand where we're looking and we were being really, really successful. More recently, we're looking at vaccination rates and what's going on in other countries and we're wondering about what's happening here. And there are many different reasons we can get into that a little bit later on. But I think one of the things that you touched upon there, which is really important, is the issue of trust. And the issue of, actually, we live in a society, we're very fortunate that we live in a society where, although we have some cynicism around certain professions like politics or journalism. Journalism, those <laughs> bloody journalists. We actually live in, in a place where we have you know, a high degree of integrity. And I think that we're fairly confident when we hear something that it's probably likely to be true and it's probably likely to be. We may need to dig around or we may interpret and put a filter on that. But generally speaking, we have a high degree of trust in our, in our society. So I think then the challenge for leaders, politicians, or in organizations, CEOs, or wherever it is that you lead, maybe you know, just in your family, is thinking about 
what the outcome might be, where we can't be certain, although we can aim and we can be aspirational around where it is that we want to be, and the processes that get us there. And I think that that's something that we have done quite well here in building processes and trust in those processes to make sure that we can get to various check marks, but then also think about, well, what's going to continue to keep us safe in this world that we find ourselves in? And how do we rely upon each other to keep each other safe as well, rather than just thinking about, well, I'm all right in a very highly individualistic society. And I think that that's where you know, there's something very clearly from our bicultural nature and thinking about what is the culture of New Zealand and how is it that we take care of each other and the blend of cultures that we have and the history that we have in New Zealand, I think gives us a slightly different take on that than perhaps other places. So now the big challenge in front of us is getting everyone vaccinated. Mm. And all around the world, there is a big chunk of the population, some places bigger than others, Mm. who are not only vaccine hesitant, which is a beautiful phrase for something, and then there's the hardcore you know, vac- vaccination opponents. How do we particularly you know, cajole, nudge, ensure the vaccine hesitant at the very least are included in the vaccination total in the end? Yes. Yeah, it's, it's very tricky. I mean, vaccine... Reluctance, vaccine refusal has been around with us way before the current campaign and the current challenge that we have in front of us. So, so to a certain extent, we don't necessarily want to spend too much time and energy in trying to convince people who we probably don't think are going to be convincible. But there is this kind of middle ground where we're thinking, well, what is it that they need? And understanding what people need in order to come to their decision but also hearing the stories of people who perhaps might regret some of the decisions that they have made. There's a whole group of, this whole series of stories that I'm hearing now from the US and the UK of people who, um, for one reason or another, chose not to vaccinate or they wanted to wait to see what the data said about you know, possible health impacts later on down the line, are now falling ill and saying, actually, I wish I had taken the vaccine when the, the opportunity was available to me. So those stories, I think, are interesting and people start to attend to, well, actually, perhaps I can see myself in them in terms of their thought process or which community they're from or some of the other things that might match with them. So I think that that's that's an important thing to understand is, you know, how do we see what's going on in other countries and draw lessons for ourselves? The other thing I think is really important is, you know, what are the constraints and what are the practical things that get in people's way? when you're asking them to come forward to take a vaccine. So it may actually be that informationally wise, they're okay, or at least as okay as they're gonna be, and it gives them confidence enough to come forward and take the vaccine because on balance of risk, they're thinking that that's probably all right. But, and we come back to this idea of actually we are driven by more than just facts. So when we have perhaps people in our social circles who talk about how they've got to have the vaccine. And they have stories around how it was actually an okay experience and that many other people in your social circle are starting to take the vaccine. One of the things I think that we also need to focus on is what is that experience like of going to have the vaccine? Does it match what the community needs? Do they want to be in a big center? 
or would they rather be somewhere more private, more confidential, where you've got you know blacked out, you know, you've got the opaque glass rather than you know people looking in to see them. So really thinking about well, what is the user experience? You know, one vaccination centre was set up. I read like a Samoan wedding. Right, and you had the kind of the auntie at the end to make sure that people leave. Uh, so <laughs> at the end, you know, they'll, they'll they'll listen to the auntie, but they may not necessarily listen to somebody else. Whereas other people are saying, you know, that's just not how we do things in this particular community. We're not going to show up for a mass event. So you really need to be thinking about what's the experience like, and are these people who go through the experience, what are they going to talk about? with their friends and family? Are they going to encourage them? Or are they going to say, yeah, no, I wouldn't bother. It was a horrible thing to do. I would wait a little while until they figure out what they're doing. So I think focusing on that user experience is something that may help with those people who are okay with getting the vaccine, but I don't want it like that. I don't want to take it in this particular way. I would rather it be delivered to me in a different way. So maybe not force everyone to do a selfie immediately after the vaccine with a big smile on their face. <laughs> no, no, not at all. I mean, it may be they want to keep it on the down low. I've thought about it myself as well. I thought, well, when do I tell people about when I have the vaccine? And I thought, well, maybe it's when I've completed it because I feel like the job's not done until I've had the second one. So, yeah, you know, there's all sorts of complex things that people think about. You know, the vaccination process is not just one vaccine. It's making sure they come back for the second. That seems to be really important. And there may even be a third. We don't know yet. That's right. Yeah. So what have we learned from the rest of the world? We, you know, by necessity or choice at the tail end of the pack. And, you know, some countries are up to 60, 70% and seem to have been successful. Canada, the UK, maybe not so much the United States, but some other countries have very high vaccination rates. What are the learnings? What are the uh, tips and tricks we've found so far in terms of what works and what doesn't? Yeah, I think... It's really interesting to see and compare what countries have, have gone through. If you look at the UK, my understanding is that, and this is an understanding that comes through networks that I have. I used to be a private secretary in the UK government, a minister, for, minister of state for health. So I, I, I talk quite a lot with people. And I think that once they understood how important it was that the NHS was delivering the vaccine, because again, it's about trust, but also that Public Health England, who had the expertise and operational knowledge around how to deliver vaccines, because that's their job, were brought back into the fold, because I think that they were kind of scapegoated quite a lot for the test and trace failure. So then I think that it was all kinds of political conversations around that. But once they settled on having the right people around the table to deliver the expertise in a way that was acceptable to the population. I think that those factors coalesced such that people started to come forward. Plus the driver of people saying, I want this to be over. And I am being told that if I have a vaccine, this will be over. Now, it's looking more complex than that. And that's what we're starting to see around the world. So complex in different ways. One is that people seem to be running into a bit of a barrier around the sort of 50 to 70 mark where the number of people who are coming forward to vaccines is starting to tail off. And my understanding is that actually we possibly need a bit higher than that in order to get what has been called you know, community immunity or herd immunity in order to see that as a real, really effective, protective barrier by itself. 
Although even that is starting to fade away as a clear idea because it seems people who are vaccinated can get the uh, um, infection and spread it, but not necessarily be very, very so sick they have to go to hospital. Yeah. Which means that people who are vaccinated who come into the country, for example, they may have a, a juicy vaccine, you know, tick on their passport mm-hmm. or whatever it is. And we think, wow, that's great. They're not going to spread it to us. Mm. And then they spread it to us or we spread it to them. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So the complexities of the, the type of the variant that we're talking about, but also, you know, I was reading some stuff from Israel today and they were saying that actually the Pfizer vaccine immunity level um, protection seems to drop off after about six months. So, yeah, we've got the, the fundamental point here is that behavior still remains the fundamental thing that we need to be thinking about in order to understand what it's going to look like to live alongside the virus for the next three to five years. Coming forward to get a vaccination is a really important part of that behavioral tool set. But to tell people and to raise hopes that the pandemic will be over if everybody gets vaccinated in an individual country sense, I think misses the point. I think this is actually just another layer uh, of our behavioural tool set and all the other tools that we have. But actually, to keep each other safe, we need to be thinking in a global context, but also what else do we need to be doing to keep ourselves and each other safe? Yeah, it's interesting. A bunch of people got high vaccination rates and then cast off the shackles by saying, no need to wear masks, we can all go um, dancing together. And then a few weeks later, well, you should all be wearing masks and, you know, keep the social distancing. And it's, it's you're right, there's, there's no, are we there yet? Bang, we're there. We can all relax. It's not going to be that sort of thing, unfortunately. No. Tell, tell me about what we've learned about how humans have dealt with lockdowns, the whole COVID shock and fear and disruption in terms of, you know, things like anxiety, mental health uh, problems, burnout. What are, what are we learning so far? Yeah, I think that, you know, in the early days, let's if we think about the New Zealand experience, I think that the, the alert level structure that was announced was incredibly containing for people. You know, in the short term, it gave them predictability of what it is that they could do, what it is that they shouldn't do, what it is that they were being asked to do in order to take care of themselves and and other people around them. And I think that that acted as a really good container for the anxiety that was being caused by the situation that we found ourselves in. I think as we've progressed forward in time, we've been relatively lucky here in that we haven't had too many major lockdowns and some of them have been in Auckland and we had a a recent, not a lockdown, but an increase in uh, alert level in Wellington too. But even there, we've seen an increase in anxiety for people, which is being uncovered by research studies as they went through those lockdowns, but also an uncertainty about the future that's being shown in an increased willingness to keep ourselves, keep the borders pretty tight until we get to a a position where we can be more confident that we're going to be protected if the borders are being opened. It's interesting to see the surveys are picking up um, that large chunks of the public are actually a lot more conservative than people in government or therefore people and also people in business about when to open up or how quickly or how much Mm. to open up. And that there's a bit of a feedback loop in there and that the government is seeing that and understanding that they can 
push back a bit or at least hold the line a bit harder against those people who are saying, oh, we've had enough, just open up. Yes. Well, and it's interesting to understand a bit about where does that come from, the we've had enough, let's just open up. You know, I think one of the things that we've learned in the research in decade over the last couple of decades is that we have the difference between the primary stressor that we're worried about and then the secondary stressors that then starts to take an impact. So in this case, in the pandemic, the primary stressor is the virus itself and the havoc that that could cause and damage and death in the country if that was unrestrained and let, let rip, as, as they say. The secondary impacts are things like you know, the impact upon the tourism industry, the impact upon the hospitality industry, but also more complex second-order secondary impacts like labour costs going up because we don't have the pool of labour that we would normally have because the borders are closed, or supply chain issues because shipping is now so much more expensive. We have people in rural communities who can't get their fencing done in a way that they could before because it's become unaffordable because of the materials or the construction industry. You know, if you're looking at, I think I was reading an article last week saying, if you're insured, you need to check how much you're insured for in terms of reconstruction costs of your house because those construction costs have gone up appreciably. So these are secondary impacts that we're now starting to get worried about because of the impact of the coronavirus, not just upon us, but on the global economy. And these are the things that I think are concerning people whose job it is to work in those industries and businesses and the income that they generate for New Zealand. And though to a certain extent, to a very large extent, I agree that without health, we have no economy. We're now in the position where we're thinking in six months time, when we have pretty much given the opportunity for everybody to come forward and have their two doses of vaccine and still keeping an eye forwards in terms of what does that look like for a long-term immunity, what is our process to re-engage with the rest of the world, knowing and seeing what it is that the rest of the world is doing too? And so I think that that's where the uncertainty, we have many different levels of it that people are trying to process. And we know that we can't process all that much all at the same time. So that's when we start to look to leadership and other social groups around us. And what are they saying? What do they know that I don't know? And is it easier for me to let them do the thinking for me rather than having to try and figure this out myself? Now, you do a, a bit of consulting with various organisations about how to understand and come up with policies or practices to deal with the sort of anxieties and stresses that workers, citizens are having. What, what could, you know, let's say a large, large organisation, the head of HR or a CEO, what should they understand and know before they start, you know, ordering people to come back into work or to stay away at home or mm. those sorts of things? Mm. Yeah, it's, it's a complex task for organisations trying to figure out and navigate their way forwards. I would, again, as I talked about beforehand, I would rather than thinking about outcomes, I'd be thinking about processes and how one process is not going to fit everyone. So really thinking about rather than people working from home or not working from home, I think we've seen more and more conversation about what hybrid models are going to work for people. So maybe, you know, a 3-2 split, you know, they're at home three days of the week or one or two days of the week they come into the office. And what is that going to look like and who does that privilege in terms of who gets to be in the office, who gets the attention of the boss and all that stuff needs to be thought about. It's complex stuff that needs to be thought about. 
But in terms of things like, what is the well-being of your staff going to look like going forwards in the future? And are we talking about people who are really stressed out or depressed? Or are we talking about people finding that they've got a renewed sense of purpose? They see it as an opportunity. Or for the majority of people who at any one time are probably in a state which we talk about as has an angle languishing. So this is this idea of a feeling of stagnation or emptiness or not knowing what's going to happen next, but not feeling particularly motivated to meet that challenge. It all feels a bit too much. And so I think that the process that organisations are probably going to be starting to go through now, if they're wise, is they will start to think about in this new world, in this new environment, which is not going to look like 2019, and it's not going to look like the early days of the pandemic, what's our purpose? What are we here for? And then how do we talk about that with our employees and everybody who's in our organisation around, does that match you? You you know this, Bernard. There's this big talk about this great resignation, this idea that people are looking at their roles, looking at their jobs and saying, do you know what? I've got an opportunity here and I'm going to change what I'm doing. We've seen this before in New Zealand. We've seen this after the Canterbury earthquakes. You know, people who were tasked to help others whilst they were going through the same thing, thing themselves, they started to make decisions around, actually, I've suddenly figured out over the last months and years that stuff isn't that important to me. Material goods aren't that important to me. What's important to me is relationships, but I also don't want to hear talk about the earthquake so much anymore because I'm kind of sick of it. So they started to manage themselves out into roles, either within the same organisation or in different organisations, where they could manage their exposure to things that are really stressful. And I think that that's what we're seeing, is that people are saying, what are my goals, what are my dreams? You know, that was a close scare. I'm going to start chasing them a bit more than perhaps I did. But also people who are also at the same time saying, that was really stressful. I don't really need that in my life anymore. I want to do something else that isn't anywhere near as stressful as that. Yeah, it's, uh, it's one of those milestones, those events that in decades to come we'll all look back on as the big thing in the same way that people in the 50s and 60s looked back on the Second World War. Mm. Or earlier than that, they look back on the Great Depression or the First World War. Have you thought about how this might change society or the way we do things it's probably early too early to say but I'm, I'm guessing you're a student of of history and uh, how people have reacted to these sorts of shocks any ideas mm. you know I've heard talk about you know the roaring 20s you know and will we see this kind of like big boom and you know how will that impact upon uh, prosperity in nations you know I think one of the things we forget or can can look past is that the roaring 20s it was not great for everyone. It was very much a select few who managed to gain from that. And then what happens to everybody else? I think one of the things that we can look upon with pride is how we came together as that team. Five million, six million, if you include those people who perhaps were offshore and were thinking about, well, how am I going to get back? So I think that there was you know, there's some discourse and debate around that. But I think as we go forwards in time, I think that then starts to fall away, this sense of collectivism that gets you through the initial impact. We then start to think about, well, what's my path forward? 
and what about my tribe or my community? And we see this again in other disasters. We see this kind of fracturing of networks where some people kind of benefit through particular outcomes and other people don't, they lose. What we know about disasters and crises is they magnify inequalities that existed before the disaster. We have really big work to do in New Zealand around some of the inequalities that affect us as a nation and particularly where the burden of those inequalities lie. So I think that we need to be forward looking and thinking about, well, what are the economic impacts of whatever is going to come next? And how can we monitor those in a really close way so that we can act early? And how can we also cooperate as international regions or as rules-based systems such that we can make sure that we spread the wealth that is generated but also ease the burden and the pain as they become clear as we emerge out of whatever comes next in the next stage of the pandemic. It's fascinating. Just before we go, Saab, could you give us what you've any tips or tricks you've you've learned through this process in terms of keeping yourself and organizations safe? Yeah. Because I've learned, for example, to turn off my email, you know, and not spend all my time on Zoom calls. That whole Zoom fatigue burnout thing is a real thing. Mm. But also, you know, any anything you'd say to people that, that might help or mm. or and, and organizations as well. Yeah. Perverse things about the pandemic is that we know that social support is one of the things that get us through disasters, but we were told not to see each other and not to be close to each other. And so one of the things that we did, as you say, is that we became you know, really dependent upon tools like the internet, like screens, like our devices in our pockets. And that might have slipped into, we may have slipped into habits that aren't that great for us. So I think one of the big things that I've learned myself is that actually starting to put some windows around when I can and when I can't do that seems to be really helpful for me. But I think it's the, you know, it's the fundamental planks of things like diet, exercise, and also sleep. Sleep, I think, is vastly underestimated in terms of thinking about our well-being. We borrow against sleep all the time. Thinking, oh, well, you know, I'll sleep in at the weekend, but that doesn't happen. And even if you do, it doesn't really refresh you. So really thinking about structure. So one of the things I've talked about constantly throughout the pandemic is the importance between the two poles, the two things that we need when we go through difficulties in our lives. One is structure and routine. That helps, you know, with that alert level system in terms of creating that container, you know, some predictability in our lives, but also empathy, not only for other people and what they may be going through, but also for ourselves. You know, this is tricky. This is hard. We're living, we're leading, we're parenting, we're trying to get stuff done in the middle of a global pandemic. And that continues as we go through, you know, maybe I remember going through talking with some agencies when we were going through the years three and four of the Canterbury earthquake and people would say, well, that's not earthquake related. So why should we get involved in that? And, you know, the conversation was everything is now earthquake related. It, and it makes no sense to differentiate, you know, what's earthquake related or not. And similarly, I think as we go through the pandemic, everything will root back to how it is that we deal with or cope with the pandemic. So any opportunity that we have in order to figure out where are we and how are we with our well-being? What are the routines and how is it that we want to structure our own lives as we progress forward over the, the next three to five years or however long it takes for us to really get to grips with living alongside this virus in our lives? 
That's very useful, actually. What I've found, particularly on the sleep side, is nanonaps. <laughs> I love a good nanonap. Yeah. Dr. Saab Jahal, who is a clinical psychologist, an independent clinical psychologist here in Wellington, a consultant, a commentator, speaker. Thank you very much for coming into the studio here, and I've really enjoyed uh, the chat. I hope that all of those people listening uh, through this podcast on the Kaka have enjoyed it. I'm Bernard Hickey. Ka kite anō. <laughs>